I'm Jason Van Metting. And I'm Ksenia Chmutana. Welcome to Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Disasters Deconstructed. This is Jason. I'm here with Ksenia. And this is week two of season two. And we're so excited that you are taking the time to tune in to our podcast every week. And we um, look forward to spending the next 20 weeks with you talking about stories of disaster. Yeah, me too. I'm really, really looking forward to listening to this season. I really enjoyed all the interviews that we've been recording yeah. for a while now. And I think Laurie Peak in the first episode of the season has really positioned the themes really, really well. Mm -hmm. um, I hope you enjoyed the interview with her as much as we did. For sure. And um, so today we are doing something a bit different that we haven't done before because we have a investigative journalist joining us. Um, a lot of you will uh, recognize our guest, Anthony Lowenstein. He is an independent um, freelance investigative journalist and an author and a filmmaker. And um, I'm sure many of our listeners will have uh, encountered his work or heard him on radio or TV. Um, or other podcasts. If not, you're in for a treat. Anthony is based in Jerusalem, and he just released a new book called Pills, Powder, and Smoke. Um, I'm in the middle of reading it, and it's great so far. So today we are going to talk to Anthony about, you know, how he uses stories and how he uses his journalism to um, sort of teach people about vulnerability and about structural injustices that many individuals and groups face around the world and how he can use those stories and narratives to create solidarity between people um, that need to sometimes rise up against these unjust power structures. Well, welcome to the show, Anthony. It's absolutely wonderful to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we're, we're just really happy to branch out a bit and start bringing people from outside of academia into Disasters <laughs> Deconstructed because that's one of the problems with, I think, our first season was we had like 90% academics, right? It's time to break out of that, guys. I agree. <laughs> it is. But, but it's important, right? Of course. Of course. Yeah, we're really happy that you've been able to join us from Jerusalem, right? Indeed, yes. So I think a lot of our listeners will recognize your name. And those of us who work in disaster studies, certainly um, a lot of us have read Disaster Capitalism. And we often refer to your work when, when we discuss how disaster risk is created um, by society. And so I just wanted to start off by asking you what inspired you to do that kind of research and make a documentary and write a book about it. So I've been a journalist now for about 15 years professionally. And one of the things that I kept on seeing on many, many examples, even before I started this research, which, which was probably in around maybe 2010 or 11, was the idea that I often was frustrated as a journalist. I mean, I'm an investigative journalist rather than a day-to-day -day sort of wire journalist, that I was frustrated often that um, I thought that there was not a lot of discussion, understanding, thought in journalism, in the media in general about overarching themes, about what a lot of us are seeing happening in the world. And I guess this came up particularly for me initially was I've done a lot of work on the refugee crisis initially in Australia because I'm from Australia but living in the Middle East now. 
but in many other places around the world, particularly since 9-11, how the refugee issue, refugee crisis, call it whatever you want, has been monetized incredibly successfully by a lot of, I would call them disaster capitalists, individuals, corporations mm -hmm. who have found a very effective way to make money from the crisis. And they're not directly necessarily causing, for example, the war in Iraq or the war in Afghanistan or the war in Syria. Some of them have had a role in exacerbating those conflicts for sure. But you see often corporations, for example, that are making money from the housing of refugees in the US, in Australia, in the UK, in various other places. So that's sort of where it started for me. And I think as years went on, I felt that I wanted to dig deeper into that. And it led me to researching the book and the film, which covered as listeners might be aware, places like Afghanistan, Haiti, Papua New Guinea, Australia, US and UK, mm -hmm. and looking at issues such as privatised war since 9-11, as I said, the refugee crisis and how people are making a lot of money from that, particularly in the US, Australia and Europe. Uh, the aid industry, which is an industry which I am not an aid person myself of course I'm a journalist so that my partner does work in the aid industry, mm -hmm. that I was seeing countless examples of countries and conflicts that were arguably being exacerbated by the aid industry. This is not to say, to be very clear, that the aid industry, people who work in the AA sector, NGOs, are not in many cases doing unbelievably effective, invaluable work because yeah. they are. Yeah. But I do think that there is not a lot of, well, not in my view, enough discussion about how often I think a lot of NGOs, in fact, are pretty happy for conflicts to continue the donor money will keep on flowing in. That's the sad yeah. reality, and I've seen that in time after time after time. So those are the kind of reasons I guess I started doing this work, which is pretty depressing, to be frank. It really connects well to a lot of the issues that we discussed in our first season of this podcast when we were talking about um, how a lot of the root causes of risk in society are sort of hidden from view and are not really spoken about. And when we talk about disasters, often the story is all about the tsunami or the earthquake um, as sort of a act of God narrative, um, where the root, the root causes of the issues that people are experiencing every day are much deeper and are actually generated by society. So I, I really admire the work that you've been doing. And it's it's a different angle on some of the stuff that disaster scholars are researching. Well, thank you for that. I really appreciate that, Jason. And one of the things that I um, have tried to do over the years, I suppose, is to always put the human story at the middle. Yes, I'm a journalist. I'm a white 45-year-old um, uh, male reporter. Can't yep. get away from that. That is my background. That is who I am. But for better or worse, but mm -hmm. the truth is that I've tried and I guess viewers, listeners can assess how well I've done this, that I very much have tried as a journalist across a range of issues, whether it's covering disasters, the drug war, Israel, Palestine, whatever it may be, have very much tried to put people's stories who are at the center of it. So not just focusing on the powerful, the so-called important, those who get headlines, but in fact, the opposite of that. And to me, most journalism, in fact, does not do that. It doesn't mm. want to do that because although journalists, if you speak to them, will say, sure, my aim is to hold powerful people to account. It's actually not true in reality. What it means is that the majority of journalists want to be close to power. And what that means practically is they'll take a lot of embeds to 
um, visit war zones in Iraq or Afghanistan. They will often be very, very close to politicians or their advisors. And a lot of the stories that they're generating is basically what you call like a sanctioned leak. It means yeah. that they're being fed this. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't good journalists doing good work. Of course, there are, whether it's in Washington, London, Lagos, Kabul, elsewhere. That's obviously true. There are good journalists across all media outlets generally, including the Murdoch Press, which I regularly criticise for its often deeply, deeply... Um, damaging work but the truth i think often a lot of journalists who write about these kinds of issues afghanistan iraq um haiti too often fly in and then fly out for when obviously i did that to some extent too but often go back to those places i maintain contacts with those places um and i maintain contacts with people in those countries rather than simply disaster x happens fly in stay there for a week and leave and I'm not saying I spent years in Haiti or Afghanistan. I didn't, but I spent some decent time there. I maintained contacts, and I still do, and I have continued to cover it often now from afar, and I think that's important to show that my aim here is not to be the hero. I mean, that might be obvious to say that, maybe to academics who – maybe don't often get a lot of praise. It's But in journalism, there is very much a hero mindset. A really big aspect of this is about saying, this could be male or female. I'm not particularly talking about as a man. I mean, this can happen across multiple genders mm. of trying to be the centre of attention, to be the hero, to be the saviour, to go in and get the story. And I'm not you know, saying I've never been part of that. I'm sure I have. It's sort of hard to avoid it in our industry, in the media industry. But in general, it's been to put people's stories at the centre of it. And the people often who don't don't get a voice, aren't heard, are being screwed over by local governments, foreign governments, whatever. And that's been important in range of work for the last 15 years and will continue to be so. And, you know, the people at the center of the story is something that we've been discussing quite a lot in our first season, um, particularly from the point of vulnerability. But unfortunately, very often the narratives about vulnerable and marginalized are built around this idea of weakness, right? And I, I think, like, to me, this is basically the foundation of disaster capitalism, that the attitude that we will help, we will come and sort of help the yes. weak, right? In a way that benefits us rather than them. So... This is a great disaster, therefore, presents a great opportunity. But unfortunately, it's not a positive way for the most marginalized societies. Um, so how do we tackle this? How do we challenge disaster capitalism? Well, the short answer is it's very hard. Um, <laughs> anyone, anyone says otherwise, of course, is lying. But I guess I say that because really one of the things that's been important over the years in terms of the work I've done is A, to not just to put people's stories at the centre, that's almost a cliche to say that, but to actually to sort of frame that it's not our job as outsiders, as Westerners, as white people, assuming we are white, some of us, to come in and save the day. Um, I mean, one of the issues that often came up for me as an example, it's not actually in my book or my film, but I'll give it a very short example. I lived in South Sudan in 2015 
listeners might be aware, it's the world's newest nation. It is descended mm. into civil war. There's probably been anywhere between two to 500,000 people killed in the last six years. It is an awful situation. And because it's a failed state, and we can maybe go into the definition of that, but essentially a state that, that the government has no interest or ability to really manage effectively, um, the UN and a range of NGOs essentially have become quasi-leaders of that country. Now, there is a South Sudanese leadership, which is sadly mostly war criminals and thugs who are doing an awful job in helping or not helping their people. So you have a situation where the UN and NGOs, many of whom do amazingly important work, are doing their best in unbelievably, unimaginably difficult circumstances to help mm -hmm. as many people as possible. And on the one hand, when I lived there, I saw very clearly that if the NGOs and UN left tomorrow, the situation would undeniably be worse. There's no doubt about that right now mm -hmm. because there's no replacement of the state. There just isn't right now. On the other hand... It made me deeply, deeply uncomfortable about the fact that a country like that and a range of other countries, I would say, in fact, increasing amounts of countries are basically run by proxy by people who are based mostly in London or New York. That's the reality. Mm. Mm. This doesn't mean that people on the ground in South Sudan or other places are not doing, as I said, important work and not, I don't mean that they're all neo-colonialist. I don't mean that. But these sort of questions, I think, are too rarely talked about. And if you ask how you overcome that, I mean, one of the things I think that often didn't happen in a place like South Sudan or, for that matter, Afghanistan or many other similar places is really any great desire by outside forces to A, I'm not talking about outside forces, I'm talking about either NGOs or outside corporations or governments that are intervening, either militarily or otherwise, in actually building up local institutions. There's actually remarkably little interest in doing that. And I saw that in Haiti and Afghanistan and South Sudan over and over and over again. Now, if there's no interest in building up institutions over time, training local people, giving them assistance if they need it, and also asking what they need, what they want, rather than telling them what we think they need, it's not surprising that a country like Afghanistan or Haiti is dependent on outside aid. I mean, of course they are. I mean, that's almost unavoidable, or South Sudan for that matter. Um, so it's sort of obvious to say this, but I think too often it's ignored deliberately mm. that when there is outside intervention, militarily or otherwise, local people's desires, interests, wishes, wants, are ignored because we know better. And this is not to say that there aren't examples where outsiders don't know more than a local person. On some issues, I'm sure, of course, they do. On some issues, obviously, that's probably the case. But too often, in fact, very often, and I've seen this over and over again in my work, and I've tried to expose this by the corporations that are going into, say, here, Afghanistan, say, American or British or Australian, for example, and their, the aid money that too often is being given by the original country is actually not going to help the locals in those countries. It's yeah. going to help the corporation get the contract. I mean, I've seen that over and over again. So you know, yeah. after the Haiti earthquake in 2010, right, the Obama administration pledged about 10 billion US dollars. Much of that didn't go to Haiti. It went to US contractors going to Haiti. And the work yeah. for after that, roughly 10 years on now, as we see Haiti is still experiencing and arguably has for over 200 years, but particularly in the last few months, has had huge political upheaval, is that, that that aid money, so to speak, was, I would argue, designed to fail. Yeah. 
designed yeah. to fail. Now, I'm not saying that means that Obama himself was involved in that. He wasn't probably personally. But there's no, you know, what frustrates me is, you know, the 2020 elections coming up in the US <laughs> and these issues do not get talked about. I mean, the US has spent in Afghanistan just on, I'm not talking about the military, I'm talking about on supposedly aid projects and support over 120 billion US dollars minimum. Yeah. That's yeah. just in Afghanistan, now, let alone the close to $1 trillion militarily. And having been to Afghanistan twice in the last decade, yes, the country is probably maybe inarguably in better shape than it was when the Taliban ran the country in 2001. Like there are some buildings, there is some infrastructure, there are some roads, there are girls being educated here and there. That's true. But, and it's a massive but, the overwhelming reality for Afghanistan is that the occupation has been a complete disaster for that country and the aid mm. money that's gone in there has largely been wasted. Uh, and the US knows this and doesn't care. And there's no political price to be paid by politicians or corporations for doing that. And in fact, the same corporations, as we know, that keep on going in there failing are continually being rewarded with new contracts. <laughs> so go yeah. figure. So you don't have to really be too cynical to... Um, imagine that that the sort of exploitation um, that occurs with a mask of helping is is something that's intentional, right? I think it is intentional. Um, I don't think it's cynical. I think it's realistic. Again, not to say every organization, government, corporation going into a country is some evil bastard. They're not. Yeah. But... Um, one only has to look at the reality in the countries we're talking about. The facts speak for themselves. It's not like I'm making up what's happening in Haiti or Afghanistan. Yeah. Anyone mm. can find that out by going online in five minutes, right? So this is, and it's set up in such a way that I would argue that often the aid industry or the aid industrial complex or whatever you want to call it is designed to fail because that maintains a continual reliance by the countries and often people in those countries for outside aid, even though often they don't see the aid and the aid doesn't actually help them. Um, unless you, as I said before, give a country and institutions um, tangible support to build sustainable um, foundations. We haven't even talked about the climate change issue, which of course is deeply affecting many of these countries as well. Then we are setting them up for failure. But again, it's hard not to see that as a deliberate plan that those countries will therefore be indefinitely reliant on us, mm. us meaning the US, the EU, Australia, you know, so-called rich countries. Yeah. That's, it's, it's, it's built in. And that's not talked about enough to me in the mainstream press. Something about your work which strikes me is that you you try to bring the characters to life. You try to bring people's stories um, to the front in a way that can um, humanize them. Like often we in in Western countries tend to see people as as others, you know, and don't really empathize with them. So, like, how do you? deal with some of these justice issues by bringing the real stories to your readers or viewers? Well, I'm pretty pissed off with injustice, which yeah. is, doesn't make me unique, I guess. In some ways, people who work in probably your area or good journalists obviously feel that way. 
good writers, good human beings, I think, really, would think that way. Um, look, you're right, putting characters at the centre of my work is important and I suppose the way I do that is to not um, overly focus or obsess over getting the powerful on side. In fact, the aim is to the, the opposite of that. And as I said, the majority of journalism which is published these days in the corporate press, the mainstream press, call it whatever you want, in the US or many Western countries, its aim, as I said, is to please those in power despite yeah. what they will say. So even though, so my work when I go on the ground in these places, um, whether it's Afghanistan, Haiti, or the last few years I've been doing a book on the drug war, so I've been on the front lines of seeing what that actually means in places like Honduras and West Africa and the Philippines, is obviously working with locals. Um, some people may have heard of a term, a fixer. Fixer is someone a journalist often works with, a local person, male or female, who assists you in, you sort of work together on the story um, in a way. They're often your eyes and ears, etc. cetera. Um, and I give, I spend months and months and months before I go to these places working with that person or others on the ground before I get there to talk about who I could speak to, who I could meet, what sort of people would be the best example of this or what's the best kind of people or area to go to to see, I don't know, a failed water project in Haiti or the fact that Afghanistan, for example, listeners might not be aware, has some of the greatest untapped resources in the world, particularly copper, lithium and other resources. Um, and that's, a, I mean, a disaster waiting to happen. I mean, one can only imagine that if, if and when that country is at peace, which right now feels like a long way away, uh, there are vultures circling, they have been for years, in fact, since the Soviet invasion 40-odd years ago, but particularly since the US went in in October 2001. And I've done a lot of work on this issue, particularly about going to local communities that are already suffering from either American or Chinese mining contracts, and the communities are being utterly shafted. I mean, they're shafted by the government, they're shafted by the mining company, they're shafted by local militias, the Taliban, they're caught between um, various insurgent groups. And it's not surprising in those kinds of places when you go there that, and this is why I think it's so important to humanise these stories, is why people in a place like Afghanistan join the insurgency. It mm. makes a lot of sense. That doesn't justify, you know, an insurgent going in and blowing up civilians. Of course it doesn't. But it explains why a lot of people are so pissed off, they're so frustrated, they don't see any other option. Um, and, you know, despite doing this kind of work, I have to say, and this is maybe more the bring back to earth sort of reality, I do often wonder the effectiveness of it. Um, I do often think to myself as a journalist, I mean, as a human being, my work is as a journalist, as a writer or as a filmmaker or author, what exactly am I achieving by doing this? Now, am I changing the policy? No. Am I making more people aware of it? Hopefully, yes. Is that having some intangible impact on pressure, changing public opinion? I like to think it does. I guess I say that because, again, it's if a journalist, and again, I speak as a, in this industry, I'm sure academics have a similar thought, but speaking as a journalist, if you don't have self-doubt about how effective you're being, you're not doing your job. 
Yeah. And right. I do often think about this actually, and a lot of issues um, that I don't have a particular solution saying, oh, I'd be more effective if I worked for, I don't know, an NGO or I was an academic or something else or a human rights group. And maybe I would be, I don't know. But, and I think I, I don't deny the, the vital importance of journalism and what it can do and can, can open people's eyes. Of course, I'm well aware of that. And I like to think I fit into that tradition. But I'm also really aware of the of the massive limitations, and as media becomes more and more balkanized as it is, and it's only going to increase in the coming decades, what really is the information that most people are receiving, and are they getting? As more people get into their tribes online, which is exactly where it's going, and social media has merely accelerated that trend, it worries me um, that we're moving to a time where those who can afford it will be able to get the so-called serious good journalism, whatever that is, whatever you think that is. But most people can't afford it and won't spend the money, so therefore they get the kind of they they get the slops, you know. <laughs> and that to yeah. me is really what I worry about: that we are increasingly moving towards a two-tier society. I forget about other issues. I'm talking about just in gathering news information. That is mm-hmm. where it's going, and these are the issues that we, you and I are talking about now. Is, it worries me because it makes more and more people either potentially less interested or or just or that they don't even get told about this. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, as the news becomes more and more parochial and it's much cheaper to report what's happening down the road than it is, say, in Afghanistan or Haiti or whatever, that's, that's something. And I've got no simple solution how to fix that, by the way, but it worries me. Yeah. Mm. Well, Please don't stop what you're doing because it's, yeah. it's just it's so <laughs> but, important. Um, but I worry about it. Yeah, yeah I worry for about sure. The effectiveness. For sure. I I think uh, like a lot of our listeners and a lot of your readers will be living um, lives that have different levels of privilege, um, and so I'm just I'm curious as to how you create content that people can really experience some sort of solidarity or connection with the people in your stories that probably live lives very different to their own? Look, one of the things I try to do often is to show how we are often complicit in what's happening in faraway countries. So that may be either where our aid money is going that is being given to the wrong people or the wrong group, so it's not particularly helping, or we have, we being a Western country, have a massive moral blind spot about a particular issue. And I'm living, for example, now in Palestine. You can't get a much more bigger blind spot than how the West often deals with this issue to the US. So to try to, not to make one feel complicit and therefore disempowered, but to say we are responsible often for what's happening in these places, not, to, not only and not solely, of course. There's often local actors who are doing horrible things, often empowered by us, I might add. Not only. Um, so I think a lot of it is trying to tie those connections to foreign policy, to the aid budget, to issues that can seem sometimes a bit maybe unsexy or <laughs> um, not directly tied to someone living in, I don't know, Nebraska or Sydney or London or wherever they might be or Paris or some other Western country to try to show that many of us we wittingly or unwittingly are often in, um, complicit in different ways and also to make people a lot more aware, particularly in my disaster capitalism work, a lot of people want to give aid money. Um, a lot of people don't, obviously, but a lot of people do. To be a lot more thoughtful about who you're giving money to and mm. why. I'm not for a second saying we shouldn't 
give money. Some people obviously very much think we shouldn't give aid money at all, and that's, I guess, a different conversation. I don't personally believe that, but I do think a lot of the money that we as individuals and countries are giving as aid is not helping people, even though we think it is. <laughs> or we like to think it is because, therefore, we can sleep better at night after, we have, yeah. you know, three beers or three Chardonnays or whatever we like. And again, I mean, I drink alcohol, so I'm not being a teetotaler by any means, but I'm just saying that there is kind of a sense, right, that people often say, I want to give money and then switch off. Uh, I was just going back to kind of you you saying earlier about the heroic action, right? And this is, I guess, our little heroic action. If we held the weak, then we are the heroes. Yes, exactly, exactly. And again, I think there's a... a and I think the media as a journalist has a massive role to play here. And often mm. we are, as an industry, I think failing because, as I said, it's very much the journalist X goes in as the hero, reports on a story and then leaves. And although there are many exceptions, of course there are. Um, and I think the rise of Trump in America is, has, is, is, has a lot to do with how the media reported on him or for the last 20 years, arguably, but particularly in the last three or four years. And here we are in, you know, uh, 2020 elections around the corner. And, of course, I might be wrong in a year's time, but I'm going to say it would not surprise me at all Trump wins in 2020. Wouldn't surprise me at all for a range of reasons. Now, of course, I hope I'm wrong. Just to be clear, just to be clear, I hope I'm wrong. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not a secret Trump supporter. But I do think that is, and the media has played a huge role in his ability to get the kind of coverage and traction that he has. And I do not see many lessons learned from my, in my industry from what they did wrong in 2016. We are still playing exactly the same horse race, who's up, who's down race that we did four years ago. Nothing has changed. I really appreciate the way that, that you help people connect with um, those who are experiencing oppression around the world in different ways. And I think there's a huge place for it, and especially in a, in a world where not many journalists go there or take on the powerful, right? Yes, that's true. Thank you. I appreciate that, Jason. Thank you. Yeah, so please keep doing what you're doing. I will. I'll do my best. <laughs> Thank you. And thanks for joining us on the podcast. And um, we'd love to have you on again at some point. I'd love to. Um, so just to remind everyone that Disasters Deconstructed is available wherever you get your podcasts. We're publishing every Monday um, for the rest of season two. You can follow us and tweet us at Disasters Decon. And we're also on Instagram at Disasters Decon. And join us on Discord for special content. You've been listening to Xenia, Jason and me, Anthony Lowenstein on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. <laughs>